Hello, lab rats. Welcome once again to Crime Keeper, where the crime is always a foot or a hand or a toe. It's Igor again, flying solo. Sorry there wasn't an episode last week. Uh, there may or may not have been an incident in the lab where I was working on a antidote for this COVID thing and accidentally turned Queen V into a newt. Allegedly. But she'll get better. For you Monty Python fans, yes, that was a reference and uh, you're welcome. Good job. Starting with our newsflash, besides the much-discussed Durst death, Theranos conviction and the like, it's kind of difficult for me to pick what stories are going to go in here because there's so many, and I really just want to find those that I connect with and also present a more diverse range of victims and their stories. So know this is where my goal is. I've had this one on my Igor story list for a while. Well, since last month. The remains were finally identified almost four decades after being found as the guitarist for the OJs. This is from News 5 in Cleveland, Twinsburg, Ohio. DNA Doe Project assisted in placing a name to the remains found in 1982 as Frank, Frankie Little Jr. Partial remnants were discovered in a garbage bag along with a skull behind a now-shuttered business. The death has been ruled a homicide. Frank was born and raised in Cleveland. His date of birth, 1943. He was a songwriter and guitarist in the 60s for the OJs, also serving a tour in Vietnam. Now, I read that he had, in the beginning of the OJs forming, that he was a member, but lead singer Eddie Levert said he was sentimental, loving, and passionate. Lavert also says Frank would have gone on to make a great career for himself in the music business, but he was in love and love drove him back to Cleveland. Frank has also has a son and a daughter. His daughter, unfortunately, passed away either 2012 or 2021. I've seen it listed as both in different sources, and his son is yet to be identified. Frank is believed to have been alive in the mid-70s, but not much is known about his disappearance or death. So obviously they're looking into it more as I find out. Any updates, I will relay them to you, of course. I was looking through people.com and saw they have named a suspect and who turned in Anne Frank and her family, which I didn't know that was something they were even still researching, but there was a book that came out called The Betrayal of Anne Frank, A Cold Case Investigation. Arnold Vandenberg, a Jewish businessman, father, and husband, who is a member of the Jewish Council in Holland. He is a person they feel did betray them. Now, the reason being, these councils were used by the Nazis to control and maintain their agenda. Vince Pankoke, who's the retired FBI agent who uncovered the alleged evidence. He says, when Vandenberg lost all his series of protections, exempting him from having to go to the camps, he had to provide something valuable to the Nazis that he's had contact with to let him know him and his wife at the same time stay safe. So as the Nazis were well known for doing, they scared people, threatened their lives to turn in their friends and neighbors so they could live, not be sent to the camps, which is horrendous. 
So if you're more interested, go ahead and get that book, The Betrayal of Anne Frank. I don't have the author's name, but I'm sure you could quickly look it up. This next item under WTF, it's a little longer than when I normally do, but I've been following this story since around the Pettit, Laundry, Schulte, Turner camping murder case. It all happened in the same area. And I hardly heard anything more about it. Of course, the whole Petito thing that took the hold of the news and um, so much information on that. But this is about Daniel Robinson, a 24-year-old geologist on his way to work and vanished in June of last year. His Jeep was found wrecked a month later by a rancher in Buckeye, Arizona. According to articles in News Nation and Rolling Stone from the end of last year, his father, David, has been living there pretty much since the disappearance. He first was staying in hotels, and then he got a one-bedroom apartment so he could stay in the area, get tips, arrange searches. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. He's spending his retirement trying to locate his son. Now, David did hire a private investigator after he felt the police did not do all they could do to locate Daniel. The police said that they don't feel there's any foul play, but David's investigator, Jeff McGrath, who I'm assuming is no relation to Mark, noted that there were 11 miles placed on the Jeep after the airbags deployed. Now, you can technically drive with a deployed airbag if the vehicle is drivable, but, you know, it's still, why don't we look into that? Daniel's keys, wallet, and cell phone were in the Jeep along with paint on the vehicle unrelated to that area. Now, Daniel worked for Matrix New World Engineering, and his father says was a scientist, a brilliant mind. All this nightmare started on June 23rd when Daniel's sister, I believe her name was Sherry, was contacted by one of his coworkers asking if she knew where he was. Now, Daniel had been at work that day, but had been acting odd, staring into the distance and talking about things that didn't make sense. After about 15 minutes, Daniel left and hasn't been seen since. David immediately drove to Phoenix and moved into an apartment, like I said, after his initial stays at a hotel. Getting a better idea of Daniel as a person, David says that he was born without a forearm and he refused. It was his right forearm and he refused a prosthetic, going on to play musical instruments, football, weightlifting, graduating with honors, and had a desire to travel. David shortly set, shortly after he moved there, set up the website, please help find Daniel Robinson, and he oversaw 18 searches that covered 15 miles. David took matters into his own hands after he got frustrated with the Buckeye police. I'm very disappointed with the police. I just realized I was inadvertently working for the Buckeye Police Department. As a father, without the volunteers, I wouldn't be able to do this at all. I'm a father out here searching for my son, and they did a total of four searches, didn't even come up with a construction cone. Robinson says he previously relayed all his findings to the cops in real time, but has stopped due to what he sees as the police's lack of initiative. He points to the Gabby Petito case as a prime example of police properly using their resources, namely calling in the FBI, and how her remains were discovered not long after she was reported missing. I do not blame the Petito family. They have nothing to do with this. They lost a daughter. 
they have a young adult, same age group around my son, and they feel the same way he stresses. All I'm saying is the cops had the resources there quickly. The Buckeye, it's like they're reluctant to use the resources. Now, Rolling Stone's author, Brenna Ehrlich, found the police report did support that they had lead searches, including one with a helicopter. Also investigated Daniel's mental state, his Instagram account posts being deleted prior to his disappearance, his alleged fixation he had with a woman he knew from a side hustle of his delivering for Instacart. Now, Daniel's sister did tell cops about this situation with this woman who she named as Caitlin. Daniel told his sister he was in love with Caitlin and that after Caitlin recommended he listen to a spiritual teacher named Eckhart Tolle, T-O-L-L-E, did and says that it taught him how to view things in the universe in a positive energy and to avoid negative energy, which is a good thing, right? Uh, however, I haven't looked into this dude. Caitlin herself denies any type of romantic relationship, saying he began to get creepy after she and a friend had drinks with him, like he texted her on her phone that he loved her, showed up at her house when she wasn't home. Now, she says the day prior to him going missing, he texted her, quote, the world can get better, but I'll have to take all the time I can or we can, whatever, to name it. I'll either see you again or never see you again. So kind of cryptic, a little ominous feeling. So this, of course, portrays Daniel as depressed and rebuffed, which is the antithesis of the child that David knows. Daniel's clothes were also found beside the Jeep. It didn't say in what state. So I imagine him being folded because that just is real creepy to me. And that indicated to police he may have just wanted to leave his life and possibly become a monk. I don't know if that's still a thing. Is that still a thing? So this is when David lost faith in the police. My son is a geologist. He's a scientist. He has a brilliant mind. He's not dumb enough not to take the money or anything with him if he wanted to, to disappear. David also cites the fact the police did give an examination two months after his private investigator McGrath did completed one and disputed their findings entirely making David and McGrath feel this was only done as a rebuttal to their findings, not an actual attempt to solve the case. Indeed, David and McGrath have found a total of four human remains the Buckeye PD had not. None luckily were Daniels. So some theories between McGrath and David are these. McGrath says that knowing that Daniel was an avid marijuana user, that he could have smoked a PCP lace joint and crashed his car, which he feels would explain his weird behavior before his disappearance. Or that Daniel was simply tired after a long night of gaming. He was apparently building his own computer and he was feeling bummed out about being rejected by this Caitlin, drove into the desert to rest where he met the wrong person. Now, David says, I believe in my heart. I don't believe that my son wanted to be away from his family. My theory is more geared towards somebody did something to my son or somebody knows what happened to my son and is not saying anything. He says, he says, I don't think my son wrecked his vehicle, got out of his own accord, took his clothes off and just walked off and survived out there in the desert somewhere. You know, I just don't believe that. So keep David and his family and Daniel in your thoughts and check out the website for Daniel. Please help find Daniel Robinson. I did check it out. You can donate. 
You can get tips. You can find out some more information. And if you uh, avoid crying from the music that's on there, along with pictures of him, then good luck because I didn't make it very far. It also, all this talk, all these quotes from David reminds me of, I think it was Schulte's, Christine, uh, Crystal Schulte's father saying the same type of thing, same sentiment. I'm here. I'm looking. I'm just a person, just a dad. You know, why am I out here alone? So it's just very heartbreaking. All right. Main event. So I listened to the last podcast on the left and as many of you do, and they've recently started a series on Mall Barker. And I was rather inspired by that to look into parent-child crime sprees. So, you know, some people read for deeper insight, self-understanding, you know, I tend to follow up on whatever idea Henry and the boys plant in me, tiny little lab brain. So I stumbled upon the richest.com's 15 creepiest mother-child criminal teams. The grammar in the article um, makes me think that it's not a subsidiary of the New York Times, probably more like the National Enquirer for Dummies, but, you know, it gave me what I needed, just the same. It's crime time, lab rats. Number 15, Sante and Kenneth Kimes Jr. You may have heard of them, but they are known as accomplished grifters. Mama Sante and son Kenneth worked to not only manage to rack up a total of 117 charges, including robbery, insurance fraud, and enslavement, and that's going to be a theme throughout these, so hold on. But they were also convicted of two murders. Kenny Boy admitted to a third murder, but no trial materialized. The mother-son sickos were known to prey on the elderly. There were suspicions of their closeness as they were known for sharing a bed. Like the same one, the same time? Ugh. There was apparently no evidence to confirm this. I don't want to know the evidence that they were looking for. Kenny is serving a life sentence and, Ma and Mama Sante died in 2014. So there are a plethora of TV episodes. I found one on Oxygen as well as movies. So check them out. I think Dateline did something about them. Um, and uh, they may have even been on a Lifetime movie because it sounds right for it, doesn't it? Number 14, Ma Barker and the Barker Carpus Gang. The truth still fully unknown, Ma Barker was portrayed as a boss of her crime-loving sons, assisting in arranging their heists, traveling with them to avoid notice, and hiding them from justice as she did their entire lives. Headlines sold papers touting her as a ruthless and morally lost person added to this hysteria, as well as movies such as 1970's Bloody Mama with Shelley Winters. It is a Roger Corman joint who also made Big Bad Mama 1 and 2 about her. Love me some Corman. Carpus himself said she was just a gullible old lady in a story that he did for the Toronto Sun. Ma was just an old-fashioned homebody from the Ozarks. Superstitious, gullible. Well, he said that twice. Simple, cantankerous, and, well, generally law-abiding. He said this in a 79 death, uh, before his 79 death in Montreal. The most ridiculous story in the annals of crime is that Ma Barker was the mastermind behind the Carpus Barker gang. 
She wasn't a leader of criminals or even a criminal herself, he said. There is not one police photograph of her or a set of fingerprints taken while she was alive. She knew we were criminals, but her participation in our careers was limited to one function. When we traveled together, we moved as a mother and her sons. What could look more innocent? She actually was more of like a dorm or den mother, renting rooms, paying their bills, cooking and shopping for them. So, of course, if you want to hear more in all of Marcus and his research assistants research, check out LPOTL on the series. I think there's another one, maybe two more on that. And uh, it's good. Love them. Brandon Glenn and Betty Adams. Brandon and his wife, Melina Moore, were said to have many altercations but this one was different. This one ended with Melina being shot by Brandon on January 1st, 2014. Did you like my Dateline beginning? I knew you would. Brandon's mom, Betty, with a Y-E, was there to partake in the New Year's Eve festivities and told police she attempted to take Melina to the hospital. Attempted. She then decided to just place her daughter-in-law behind the wheel of her own vehicle. Yeah. Uh, why? Miss Betty says she was afeard the crime would be blamed on her. For reals, Betty, with a Y-E? The creep factor here is within the seemingly rela seeming relationship between the three individuals. That is a quote from the article, and I don't know exactly what that means. So I guess that Mama Betty was scared of her own son and or didn't want him to get in trouble. So she tried to cover it up by trying to make it look like Molina was attempting to take a drive and was shot. Not sure. All in all, not a healthy relationship. Number 12, Edith and John McAlden. Now here's a reverse of the previous story. It's a son assisting his mom. So most moms just want to help, just want help with the dishes and laundry folded and stuff like that. But mama Edith was over at her boyfriend's place, hanging out and drinking with him and his two roommates. Argument breaks out between David, the boyfriend, and one of his mates. For some reason, Edith stabs her own man in the thigh, severing an artery. Guess uh, crimes against humanity can get competitive. So once again, no police or ambulance is contacted. Instead, Edith calls her son, John, who then takes a taxi and brings a friend to the apartment where he was directed by his mommy to eliminate the witnesses. So he stabs and beats one roomie in the head. Then he and his tag along bludgeon the other one with his own golf gloves. Ugh. 11. Trafficking human beings is horrific. And one might imagine drug-addled dudes trying to play build a pimp empire when you hear about it on the news. This story shows a darker truth. Mom Sherilyn and son Joshua threatened and forced into sex work two 15 and eight-year-old girls. They sequestered the runaways in multiple states, which attracted the attention of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement's Homeland Security investigations. Sherilyn would take the girls to prearranged hotels for the under-coercion rendezvous when Sonny Boy Josh wasn't able to run this despicable errand himself. Conversation probably went like this. Mom, you know, I have to pick up my Kroger order and get my new boots from DSW that came in. So think you can cover me at work? Something along those lines, I'm sure. 
the duo got minimum 15 years for each count. 10. Martha, Patty, Cannon, and the gang. Now we are on to a mother-daughter crime. Girl power! Maybe not. Unfortunately, we are keeping within the human trafficking theme, this time in the 1800s. Mom Patty got her start and the idea when her daughter, whose name is not recorded, married two men involved in the illegal slave trade. Hit yourself to a star. It didn't hurt. The area in which they lived was a common place for freed slaves to settle. She carried out her crime trade at her farm, where she and her cohorts were able to be successful due to authorities not wanting to get involved. We've heard that a lot, unfortunately. Eventually, the property was searched, where four bodies were found, including one child. She was once known as the wickedest woman in America and was a topic of PBS's History's Mysteries. This gang included her husband, Jesse Johnson, and his son, Joe. In 1829, a tenant farmer was on the land and found a trunk full of human bones. According to the DelawareOnline.com, which led to murder charges in both Delaware and Maryland. Cannon is said to have killed a white slave trader and two or three children. Mom Martha was the only one arrested as the others beat feet, but true justice didn't have a chance to get served. She took her own life in prison prior to the trial. Nine, Shanice Stewart and children. Yep, you heard that right. Mom Shanice is said to have instructed her own kids to purloin items such as credit cards, as she did once in Fort Myers, then go on a shopping spree. She had one of them steal a wallet for this purpose and worked in conjunction with two other women to also steal about $2,000 from a Walmart, hitting it three times in one hour. Yeah, surveillance. As the author of the article states, this may not be the most shocking of the sordid entries on this list, but it's definitely deserving of its spot. I don't know about you, but the training of children to be criminals is something that I find incredibly unsettling. Eight, Daphne and Samuel Pratt. There's a lot more abducting of human beings and selling them than I thought there would be on this list, which makes my stomach drop with dread. Mom Daphne ran the sex trafficking and gun running empire upon direction from her son, Samuel Paramus Pratt in New York, North and South Carolina. Did I mention this began when he was already in prison? They shanghaied girls as young as 14 to take state to state to their clients and also were convicted of possession and distribution of child pornography. Daphne seemingly found this all normal until she finally testified against Pervy Pratt in 2016, where he was facing life, something he did take from so many. Unfucking believable. Seven, Mildred Gonzalez and Milka Alfaro. This mother-daughter team focused on Medicare fraud in Miami, Florida, by using what is referred to as patient recruiters to obtain new clients in order to bring Medicare beneficiaries into the scheme, which led to seven locations. So what exactly was their scam? They paid illegal healthcare kickbacks to patient recruiters and medical professionals and admitted that they secretly co-owned and co-operated seven home health care agencies in the Miami area, which they failed to disclose their ownership interests of 
to Medicare as required by relevant rules and regulations. Mm. This resulted in $20 million taken from Medicare. And I think we all can agree that could have really gone to a lot of people that needed it. Now, they have a classic tale of idiocy of how they were caught. Listen to this. They were trying to smuggle $2.4 million into the States from their trip to the Dominican Republic in baby diapers. Yep. Which reminded me of that old love slogan, live and learn, then you get loves. The opposite applies here. Better yet, they tried to tamper with witnesses and evidence before they were tried and pleaded guilty. Six, Agnes and Ike Chukwu Uchendu. I won't be saying those names again. So I'm going global with this one, kids. Nigeria, to be exact. Mom Agnes and son were wealthy enough to have maids. Nice, right? Not the way they did it. They hired a nine and 11 year old Hope and Nosy Ajunwa whom they burnt with electric irons when they suspected the girls of stealing $100, 100 Nigerian Naira, which is equivalent, get this, to 33 cents in U.S. dollars. This luckily got back to the International Federation of Women Lawyers, who in turn sent a petition to the Nigerian government requesting their immediate arrest and conviction. This was upheld and the girls were given medical attention. Now, I tried to locate more information on the health and status of the girls, but I couldn't find anything. So I don't know if it's because they're minors, the government doesn't want to admit to it, or a little bit of both. But I just thought of the fact that I've burnt my fingers here and there over the years and how painful it was. And it was just minor, you know, burns. So I can't imagine the torment of these third degree scarring charred skin burns. So agonizing. So I'm really glad that these crusty evil ice holes got what they deserved. They suck. Five. Terenisha and Tremaine Davis. Tremaine was just 15 when he gets into a kerfuffle with another team at the Considine Little Rock Family Life Center. And yes, kids do call them kerfuffles. It's the hip thing. So he goes home, tells his mom, and of course you're thinking, well, mom should be supportive and comforting and talk him down and you know make him chicken noodle soup or whatever. But not Terenisha. She convinces her son to get revenge, which is always a good idea. She then drives him back to the center, giving him a gun and tells him to keep shooting at the other teen until he hits him. Fortunately, Tremaine wasn't a good shot and missed his intended target, but he did hit a 19-year-old Dimitri Jackson standing nearby, striking him in the head and killing him instantly. Terenisha was sentenced to 22 and a half to 40 years, while her son was sentenced from 10 to 25. Wow. It's just such an incredible waste. You know, I, it, wants me, it makes me want to text my mom because although she can be a real ball ache, it's on a completely different, well-adjusted level than this, which is a complete shit show. Four, Letitia and Noel Carrasco. So we're definitely heading into a darker place as we begin our descent into the top four. We've heard a lot of examples of what I like to call toenail fungus of the soul so far, but uh, yeah, 
Now, I find it bad form to involve your child in your man trolling activities, but uh, here mom Letitia disagrees. December 22nd, 08, she decides to go out clubbing, as we called it in the 90s, and pick herself up some strange. No judgments here, but the judgments, they are a coming. Letitia offers not only the poos, but uh, asks for some cash to partake of said poos. Her date agrees, and they head to the upscale named Covered Wagon Hotel. That's right. Where son Noel was hiding. Once mom and her date were in the room, Noel jumps out and demands the man's money. When the dude refuses, Noel stabs the poor horn dog in the chest and stomach, strangles him with the phone cord that fractures his skull as well. Luckily, Noel was passing time by texting his girlfriend so the co- cops so the cops caught them both. Classy. It's like, are you too good to drive for Uber? There's so many other ways to get paid. Number three, I have a real hard time saying this. So I'm going to sound it out and I won't say it again. Tarver Diava Podkopeyev Gang. There, look it up. Try it yourself. It's not easy. I'm going to use the first line of this one from the article so you can appreciate it with me. Okay, you ready? As they say, the family that slays together is probably going to mostly killed. Yeah. Like I told you earlier, it's a more national inquiry for dummies than anything else. This gang was based in Russia and was led by a former nursery school teacher, which sounds about right, Anessa, and her daughter, Victoria, not spelled like Queen V. They also managed to involve two other family members, one of which was the father, a dentist. I mean, hello. You could like stick with that and probably get like a boat or something. That's the thing in Russia. So made this a foursome of ruthless, torturous killers. As proof, they gouged out the eyes of two teenage girls and claimed to have murdered 30 people. Two of the gang were eventually killed in a shootout with police. But I did look further into this and saw on Wikipedia, it said that both their daughters One, the 25-year-old Victoria, the other 13 years old, along with the father, began burglarizing and murdering for six years. They were referred to as the Gang of Amazons, apparently referencing the fact that women held the reins over the man. Old dentist daddy was a suspect in the death of Anessa's first husband. Also part of the crew, according to Wikipedia, was the dentist dad's sister and brother-in-law. So there's a total of six, I guess. Number two, Diane and Rachel stopped. So we now come to the trope of the poisoner woman or women in this case. Missouri mom and daughter Diane and Rachel hated their entire family, except apparently one another. Instead of ghosting them or just limiting contact to like Thanksgiving and Christmas like the rest of us, they found their answer in their garage. Rachel confessed to putting antifreeze in her family's drinks. Husband Mark was a first to die, then son Sean the same year at the age of 26. I read somewhere that they were 147 days apart in death and that Sean also had um, some disabilities and the mom admitted to killing Sean because he was too much trouble. 2013 would see the severe illness of sister, daughter, Sarah, 
and also where a tipster would relay to the popo their suspicions. Sarah did survive and testified against her own mother and sister and helped convict them of two counts of murder. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen so many things on different series about true crime where the what a horrible way to go. They get nauseous. It just, it burns. I just, the horrible, it can paralyze them. They can get blind. I just, to do that to people is just, I mean, there's a reason why it's at number two. Number one, Ludmilla and Alexander Sasha Spestavez, not Estevez. Specific anyway, it's Russian. This number one spot is completely deserved. Mom Ludmilla agreed with son Alexander Sasha's feeling that the local street children, as they were called, were a menace and that Russia needed to be cleansed of these derelict poor. So starting in 1991, they murdered 19 children by the mom inducing them to Sasha's apartment. Once there, he would beat and rape them before stabbing them to death. Now, here's why it has sought it does. They would also cannibalize their victims and use parts of them in decorating his hovel. Ludmilla would be sentenced to 13 years in prison for helping lure the young girls to their doom, whereas Sasha was declared insane and committed to a psychiatric ward. So after hearing that one, I feel it's cringing. It's cleansing brain palate time. So think of the cutest, funniest thing your pet has done. Mine is whenever I am able to get a stylist to touch my dome inside the lab, whatever product they use on it makes my cats go nuts. They grab onto my skull, rub against it with their faces like so hard. I feel, feel their little teeth. They're like trying to become one with it. And although love hurts, I kind of look forward to it. Maybe it's the scent. I don't know. But um, I want you to now go to the Crime Keeper Facebook page and tell me what yours is. We will get this out of our brains together, hopefully. Well, you know what time it is. Queen V is calling me back into the lab with promises of salty fish head goodness. So I must depart. Good night, dear lab rats. Remember, everyone must find their truth. And mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats.